0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
1: This episode of Other People is brought to you by Penguin Books, publisher of Stories for Nighttime and Some for the Day by Ben Laurie. Publishers Weekly says, The 40 cheerfully ominous stories in this collection feel like collaborations between Tex Avery and Franz Kafka. Kirkus, in a starred review, says, quote, One of a kind, a thoroughly entertaining antidote to rigid thinking and excessive seriousness. End quote. L Magazine calls it loopy, yet lovely. Ray Bradbury says, This guy can write! Exclamation point hudson booksellers just named stories for nighttime and some for the day one of the 10 best fiction books of the year that's stories for nighttime and some for the day by ben lorry it's available now from penguin it's a book you can read it go and get it oh my god you are not alone you have found other
0: people
2: you and I have a friend in common.
1: Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I
2: think it's really beautiful. <laughs> Jesus, did it. what a struggle, you know?
1: It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right, <laughs> right. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. I'm Brad Listy. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. I will be talking with Katie Arnoldi in just a moment. She is the best-selling author of books like Chemical Pink, The Wentworths, and most recently, Point Doom. Uh, You know, and so before I get there, I want to talk about some stuff. I want to talk about recurring themes, recurring themes in my life. I want to talk about things that I think about doing but don't do. That's sort of a recurring theme. Uh, Katie brings some of this stuff to mind because to me, she's like a combination of Jane Goodall and James Bond, uh, with maybe a little bit of Martha Gellhorn thrown in there. She's a writer of fiction, uh, you know, in a really disciplined way. And, uh, she also manages to lead a really interesting life. This is a, this is a woman who travels, who goes out, who gets her hands dirty, who does field research, who, uh, you know, is a woman of action. She does stuff. She's a surfer. She was raised in Malibu. She lives on the coast. She's, she's you know, she's something that I kind of aspire to be. Uh, I wish that I were more of a man of action, that I did stuff like that more often. That's a recurring theme for me. Uh, I think about a writer like William Volman, who goes out and, like, lives among prostitutes and studies them and, you know, lives on the edge, goes to war zones. I think about, like, Hunter Thompson when he was embedded with the Hell's Angels or a guy like Sebastian Younger, who's in Afghanistan, wrote a book called War. You know, and and obviously this stuff is not the sole provenance of male writers, as Katie demonstrates, but it is often associated, I think, with a certain male writer archetype. And, uh, you know, there's this persistent recurring notion or recurring theme in my own life, in my own brain, that when you do crazy shit, it's good for your books. And I don't do enough crazy shit. You know, I don't want to write novels of the suburbs. You know, I, I, I basically, I think I write white male fuck up novels. That's, that's what I'm drawn to books about white male fuck ups. I think that's sort of it. I think that's a genre. Uh, you know, a writer named John Warner wrote about that over at Book Riot. Pretty funny. I'm actually going to be talking to John on a future episode. White male fuck up novels. I think that's kind of what I do. But I need to branch out. And I'm not a writer of fantasy. I'm not, you know, writing about magical worlds and lichens. And, you know, I'm not envisioning the future or distant planets. So you need material. You need visceral life experience. You need to, you know, I've actually thought to myself that maybe I should go undercover. You know, I've actually thought, what if I join the CIA? You know, these are passing thoughts. And then you think about war. You think about joining the military. That's something, you know, I don't think I could hack, to be honest with you. I'm not interested. I wouldn't be a good soldier. But, uh, or I don't think I would be unless I really needed to be. But, uh, you know, you got to wonder, are there male writers out there who have joined the military with the central idea or the central motivation of getting a good book out of it? Has that happened? I got to believe that's happened. And and if it has happened, who, who is cop to it? You know, I think of like Anthony Swafford, maybe the guy who wrote Jarhead, but I feel like there were other things at work. You know, he had sort of a family legacy to fill out, you know, to fulfill. But there have to be guys in the military who are writers, who were secretly there only because they were looking for, like, a great novel. That's a hell of a price to pay, but I bet you it's happened at least once. I mean, that's that's a way to get your hands dirty, for sure. That's a way to get some material. So I look at my own life, and I think the only time I've ever done anything even close... To something like that. Now, the only time I've ever done anything truly uh, interesting. <laughs> Sounds terrible to say. But the only time I've ever done anything really ballsy was when I went on the Appalachian Trail for three months. Lived outside alone with my dog for three months. Hiked half of it. thousand miles. And uh, you know, I sometimes worry that it's the only cool thing I've ever done. To the point where I feel bad about, about talking about it. because you know, Not that it's bad to talk about it, but only because it was so long ago. This was like 15 years ago. And it might still be the best story that I have. People like to hear them. You know, I mean, yeah, I've been to Burning Man and I've traveled, but that doesn't count. I don't think it counts. But the Appalachian Trail, living outside with my dog, that was an experience. I was out of my element. It was kind of an insane decision. I don't really know what I was thinking. I was 20 years old. I had no outdoor experience. I didn't grow up camping. I'd been out alone in the wilderness exactly zero times. And so then suddenly I just graduated school and I'm in the North Georgia wilderness with my dog Merlin and you know, that's it. And of course I'm thinking about deliverance. I'm suddenly a protagonist and and I'm doing something and then, you know, I start hiking. I start the actual reality of the thing and it's pretty much miserable. It's raining. Uh, the weather is terrible. It rains on me 24 out of the first 30 days. I'm hiking up and down mountains. I've got too much stuff in my pack. I've got 60 pounds on my back. I'm doing 12 to 15 miles a day. I'm terrified of hillbilly rape. I'm hitchhiking. I'm scared for my life. And I'm thinking that I'm living dangerously and that I'm having this hardcore experience. And, you know, eventually the summer rolls on. I get to Virginia and I wind up reading Into the Wild by John Krakauer. And, of course, now Krakauer is a perfect example of a guy who goes out and does crazy shit and then writes about it, you know? And he was writing about a guy who did even crazier shit. Alexander Supertramp, Chris McCandless. The guy was so intense, he changed his name to Alexander Supertramp. So, you know, me, I'm on the Appalachian Trail, and my mother is sending me food every days, or every five days. You know, I'm hitchhiking into towns and picking it up at the post office, and my mom is making me little sandwiches. That's not the same kind of experience. But for me, it was intense. And, you know, you you go into town, you stay the night at a ratty motel, you take a shower, you go back out into the woods. Meanwhile, Alexander Supertramp is like burning his wallet in the desert and wandering around and hitchhiking to Alaska and living in the sticks with a shotgun and a giant bag of rice. And I'm reading about this. Thinking to myself, I thought I was doing something. I thought I was having a big experience, but not really. You know, so what do I need to do? Do I need to go to space? You know what I'm saying? Someone like, what's the new territory? What hasn't been done? You know, like vacation, space travel, writers going to space. I have no desire to go to space. Other planets, not really interested. Unless I know that I can get there safely and quickly. And I know that the planet is clearly more beautiful than Earth and more hospitable. No doubt about it. I would need Guarantees. But I mean, Mars? Are you kidding me? I have absolutely no, no desire to go to Mars. At all. I've seen pictures. Who wants to go there? You know, I mean, even the moon. Like, maybe it would be cool to, to jump around on the moon. I can see that, kind of. But other planets, distant planets, aliens, foreign life forms, extraterrestrial life forms... You know, what it makes me think about, actually, in a weird way, going back to the Appalachian Trail in North Georgia, is deliverance, which is a really persistent narrative. You know, I remember being out there in North Georgia, and people talk about that. The James Dickey novel, I think it was James Dickey. The movie, which I think has more, uh, you know, it's more uh, deeply rooted in the, in the collective uh, consciousness. The Burt Reynolds, the Ned Beatty squeal like a pig, all that stuff. But deliverance is essentially the same as every outer space movie you've ever seen involving distant planets and other species and interactions with hostile aliens, strangers in a strange land. You go there, you're the stranger, you're in the wild, you're out of your element and the aliens, the locals, the indigenous population, they are not friendly. They want to sodomize you and they want to probe you. What am i talking about anyway it would oh one thing it does remind me of the fact that i drove a ford Probe in high school true story bright red a probe that was my first car and you know i ask you here has there been a more poorly named vehicle in the history of american automobiles i drove a probe think of what a probe is where a probe goes a man of action a young man of action and his probe Uh, Los Angeles native, is that correct?
2: I am actually fourth generation.
1: That's that's rare.
2: Isn't that funny? And but before I was told I was fifth generation, but then I'm like, Mom, break it down. I need it on paper because someone asked me about it, and she broke it down, and it turned out it was fourth generation. So okay, fourth generation. I thought fifth, but fourth. Yeah, it is rare.
1: Well, wow. So and and and
2: deeply from California. Southern California,
1: Southern California, you and yeah. you, you grew up in Malibu. Still live there? Grew up
2: in Malibu. My father was a surfer. He bought this property on the beach in nineteen fifty nine. Bastard!
1: Unbelievable. Three
2: acres on the beach for thirty nine thousand oh, dollars, and there was there were no houses, there were no people and just this perfect little point break. Um, so I grew up there like a good
1: surf break right out your back yeah tomorrow.
2: yeah yeah and I've been surfing yeah. my forever I mean I've been surfing my whole life and uh
1: so how good are you
2: well, I was I surfed competitively for a while, you know. I mean, now I'm like a I'm a middle aged longboarder, but I was kind of good.
1: But like you can get up and like
2: yeah, dude. The whole thing.
1: <laughs> I'm a I surf. I had a very brief surfing career. It's hard <laughs> to learn in Southern California because the breaks are so crowded.
2: Well, it is now. Yeah. yeah. And
1: then I would go out there, and I would you know I'm not like the world's best athlete. Like I'm, I think I'm sort of athletic, but I'm not the world's best athlete. If that makes sense. Yeah. And well, I would, I would just like get pummeled and my board would fly and I'd like surface after being underwater for 15 seconds and some guy would be screaming at me. I, I like, know This is not like the mellow, you know, it, it's
2: a hold that it's become, it's I've, I've said this repeatedly that surfing is now the new yoga. It's not so new anymore, but it's, such a fat, and it's so crowded, and it's so difficult. I wouldn't want to learn now either.
1: It's hard. Yeah. I mean, and if I had like a great, easy break that was totally uncrowded and I yeah. could, you know. Yeah. I kind of want to do this paddle surfing thing. Stand up paddling. Is that nice?
2: Well, okay. So in Point Zoom, I worked through my anger issues with the stand up paddlers or suppers, as they like to call themselves. Um, and uh, it is not nice for a, a, classic surfer because they're on 15-foot logs and they can catch the wave way out and they can catch more waves and um, there are too many of them and they are ruining the etiquette of surfing. It's I was
1: sort of like snowboarders and traditional well, skiers. Well, you
2: know what? It's funny because I'm a snowboarder. I was a skier and I switched over to snowboarding and I have a lot of ideas about that. We can talk about it if you want to. But um, it's a little bit different because there are a limited amount of waves we're, the mountain's there, and you can keep going up and down and up and down. The swells come and go. And if you have 50 people in the water, and a wave comes every however many seconds, and really, ideally, it's one person on a wave, and you've got those 50 people in the water, and 25 of them are stand-up paddlers, the people on shortboards aren't going to get too many waves. And, and there used to be kind of an etiquette um, and that would control, you know, you'd sit in the lineup and you'd take your turn and all this stuff. And that's how I grew up. And if you weren't very good, you didn't go out to the better breaks. You you know, sat inside, you took over the leftovers the and etiquette. whatnot. Etiquette. Etiquette is gone. And stand-up paddlers are jumping in and, and being able to ride waves very quickly without going through the, you know, the, the building blocks of learning how to surf and, um, so, anyway, that used to make me very angry, and I wrote this book, Point Doom, and I worked through my anger, and I'm so much calmer now, and in fact, you know, I surfed over the holiday weekend. That would never have happened. The last five years, I just would turn my back on the ocean when it got crowded, because it made me so angry, and now I don't care anymore. It's nice.
1: And you can go out on a break when there's like 50 people. I mean, well,
2: what happens is the nasty Katie comes out, and I don't really like her, because, you know, you get your game face on, you paddle up, and you sit in line up, and you pull your lats out, and you're like, mean. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) and i'll give you the stink eye and if you go to paddle and i'm in the right position you do not want to be next to me the voice and the language and the whole thing it works it works um and i don't really like to see her too much anymore so that's generally on if there's a swell and it's really crowded i try to stay away because i'll get real grumpy and the whole thing is serenity in the ocean
1: (laughs) that is similar to yoga in that way there's just a lot of like you know yeah uh, irony
2: Right. But it's not that serene when you're competing with people for waves. Yeah. No,
1: and it's crowded and everything in LA is so crowded. You just want to have some space out there.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: So I know. Yeah, I think I'm going to – maybe I'll boogie board.
2: You know, it's funny, though. So in the last – I'm just thinking of this now. So the surfing thing made me grumpy, and so I started spending a lot of time underwater. I was always a scuba diver. But in the last few years, I've become an obsessive scuba diver and spent more time underwater than, than ever before and, and enjoying the ocean from that perspective, and it's been so cool. Although I keep getting ear infections. It's in,
1: right outside, like off the coast of Southern California? Oh, yeah,
2: there's great diving in Southern California. Is there? Oh, yeah, Catalina is amazing.
1: Okay, I didn't yes. realize that.
2: Really beautiful. So.
1: And you're certified, you have the whole thing? Yeah. You're yeah, not yeah, scared yeah. of it or anything?
2: No, I love it. I really like it. You're fearless. I love the ocean.
1: Yeah. You have no fears yeah. of like, you know, the ocean doesn't or-
2: scare me rivers, freshwater. That's a little different. Like I've done river rafting trips. A lot of those, I understand the ocean. I understand instinctively. Cause I grew up there. I understand like I, I can be out in a huge swell and held down and I understand what's going to happen. And there's never been a panic in the in a river with those recirculating waves and holes and stuff. I don't understand that instinctively, so I'm a saltwater fish for sure.
1: Interesting. Yeah it is. Yeah, and you have like no shark have you ever seen a shark or anything? I've where? seen
2: lots of sharks. While surfing? Not while surfing, diving. Oh,
1: biting them while diving,
2: yeah. And I, I find it thrilling and they're what beautiful. Ki- what kind of sharks? Uh, the biggest shark I've seen it was a big grey reef shark. I've seen hammerhead sharks, I've seen I've seen lots of kinds of sharks. And my daughter's actually at Stanford studying great white sharks. So sharks are a big part of our life.
1: Wow. Yeah, it's cool. She's at Stanford?
2: Studying great white sharks.
1: Smart smart girl.
2: Smart girl obsessed with sharks. <laughs>
1: wow. That's interesting. Yeah. So like you're underwater, you you're not in a cage.
2: No. Well, I you know, I haven't ever been out with those big great whites. She has. She's been out tagging to the Farallon Islands with like eighteen, twenty foot sharks and
1: Where are the Farallon They're
2: off San Francisco.
1: Okay. Yeah. There's a lot of Great Whites up yeah, there.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah.
1: That so you're underwater, you're scuba diving, it's a nice day. How deep are you? Like fifty feet underwater? Oh
2: no, I've been you know, like I just got back from a trip in um Borneo. To go see schools of hammerhead sharks. And what you do, it's deep diving. So you go, you drop down to like 90 feet. Then you swim out into the blue. Then you drop down a little bit further and you hover. So you're just, it's this weird, like beautiful blue atmosphere and you just hover there. And you can't stay that long because it's very deep. And then the hammerheads are curious and they come up and they swim by you.
1: Those are, those are man-eating sharks. Yeah, right? Yeah. It's so cool. I and mean, you like that.
2: I have. I'm such an adrenaline junkie. I love it.
1: Wow. So yeah. Yeah, you truly fearless, because I would be...
2: I'm fearless in those situations, urban situations and crowds. That's where we can talk about my fear. But natural situations, I'm pretty fearless. Okay.
1: Look, I mean, I guess I should say, because like, I've I've been scuba diving. They're like resort dives or whatever, yeah. where I have a guide. I'm not certified, but I've been underwater on multiple occasions. Uh-huh. Uh, I've seen, like, reef sharks.
2: Yeah. I was down, in, down right? in
1: Australia at the Great Barrier Reef, right? I think, and then... Um, where else did I do? I did it. I did it off the coast of Cuba.
2: Oh, um, cool. Yeah. I've never been to Cuba. I'd love to go. Well,
1: it's, yeah. And so, um, anyway, I remember see you know, when you, and then I've also been out in the, in the woods and I've seen bears and stuff like that. And when I see those things, it is weird that like, it's totally peaceful. You think it's going to be, and I guess if one's charging you, that's a different story. Or if one's biting on your leg, but, uh, it's really, it's really, uh, I remember being like, oh, cool.
2: Yeah, (laughs) me too.
1: There wasn't like this huge surge of fear, which you would think there would be.
2: Right. I've seen a lot of bears too, and I get this real calm thing. And if they get too close, I do this thing where I bark like a dog, and that works really great. Instead of yelling and screaming, I just look at them and just bark like, And they take off.
1: Well, like, we're talking, uh, black, black, bears. Bears. Yeah. black bears. Black bears. Who, they, who, I don't
2: know about grizzly bears. Yeah, grizzly bears. I don't, that's something I don't really want to deal with.
1: No, but. I'm, yeah, I fear the grizzly. Yeah. I don't but want the to.
2: California black bears are so cool. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And they really don't want much to do with you. No, they don't. You have in, food, in the, the front food. country,
2: where they've sort of been acclimated to people, they might be more aggressive. But in back country, they really don't. Yeah. Yeah. So.
1: Little cubs and everything. Yeah. Um, so. Just to get back to this though, like with a hammerhead shark, how close were they to you?
2: Hammerheads weren't that close. The The big gray that I'm talking about was, this was in Rangiroa, and it was a real curious shark. Where's where is Rangiroa? Rangiroa is one of the two Motos Islands. So you fly to Tahiti, and then you take a small plane out to, um, the, it's a tiny little atoll called Rangiroa, and it's a really good dive spot because it's a. It's a, you know, it's like a rim of a volcano, although I don't think that's true. But anyway, it's a rim and there's two passes. So the tide rushes in at the passes and then rushes out. So there's all these sharks and huge manta rays and all this wild, all this stuff at the passes. And um, it came around and circled. It was close. It was really close. Touch it. As close as we are.
1: Oh, my God.
2: Yeah, but it, it kept going. It didn't stop.
1: We are actually 30 feet away. Yeah, right. right.
2: No. We're not. <laughs> <laughs> He's in another room, we're so the, it's not know, that we're scary. In my
1: massive home studio. <laughs> uh, so to get back to Malibu then, growing up there, because obviously a lot has changed. I picture it as this idyllic place back in the day because, uh, you know, it used to be country. I mean, yeah, well, still the, see, is,
2: it was... It was Really windswept. There were no trees when I was growing up. And my mother recently con- confessed that she hated it so much because the wind would just sweep down the gullies and those canyons and come out on the point there. And, um, there weren't very many houses. And the people that did live up there were, were mostly blue collar people that kind of wanted to be left alone. The parents of my friends were like plumbers and electricians. And, um, and it was, it was paradise. Like at low tide, we'd take, uh, I remember my father taking a screwdriver and popping huge abalones off the reefs and then we'd pound them and cook them up. And there were the, the ocean. I don't even know what that is. An abalone? Yeah. Well, that's the reason you don't know is because they're gone. Oh, okay. It's, it's, it's like a, it's a shellfish that's that adheres to a rock and you pound it. It's delicious if you ever get a chance, but they're, they're farmed now. You can't find them in the ocean, hardly at all. Um, and there were octopus in the tide pools and there was all this and lobster everywhere. And, uh. And we could ride horses on the beach. And, and then I got a little bit older and started surfing, and there was this real tribal thing up there. And um, it, it, Little Doom, Point Doom, was this. it's a private beach. It's one of the last ones. You had to have a key to get down there. And there were these, this group of guys that had been in Vietnam and came back. They're, they were about 10, 15 years older than I was. And they were pretty damaged now in retrospect, and they were living in this little hut on the beach, and they were all studying martial arts, and so they were karate guys, and they had crossbows, and I remember those throwing stars, and they were like the police. And if an outsider came up and tried to surf at the point, and I was like this little bratty surf grom, I'd be like, Rod, I don't think they live here, and they took off in front of me. And then these guys were just itching for a fight, and they descend on these poor victims and you a, throw them like out like a pack
1: of like PTSD riddled, unbelievable,
2: vets. exactly
1: training to be like ninjas, essentially
2: just dying to beat somebody up. And right. so nobody wanted to surf at Point Doom. And when I was a teenager, I was dating this guy um, who was a great surfer. He's in all the magazines and stuff, but he was from not from from that area. And I was like, come on, you know, there's a swell. come and surf here. He said, I'm not going to ever surf there. Forget it. I'm not, it had this reputation of being really dangerous for outsiders. Okay, I'm not saying that's great. As a parent, having raised two kids there now and my son wanting to go and beat up outsiders, I'm like, that's not what we do. It's not okay. <laughs> but when I was growing up, it was fantastic. Right. <laughs> so, and that's all changed. And, I, you know, I can pinpoint in my mind the day it changed. I have a friend that was out. And there was a swell, and there was this guy that kept dropping in on him. And I won't. It doesn't matter what the guy's name is. Anyway, the guy was out of line, and my friend Kirby, who's just an amazing surfer, finally paddled all over to him, grabbed him by the hair, pulled him off his board, and held him underwater—an appropriate response to the behavior of this guy. Anyway, it turns out the guy was a judge and filed charges against Kirby, and this whole thing happened, and. And that in my mind is the day that surfing changed. And, you know, I mean, then from that point forward, I started noticing that there were lots of lawsuits, particularly down in Palos Verdes. And, uh, yeah, it's just, it's a different world now.
1: And Malibu got a lot more crowded. Well, and it, it
2: gentrified, you know, it's, it's the, 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 the money moved in.
1: Well, now, yeah, when you were growing up, that's a, that's a natural question. Was there like Hollywood royalty moving out there? Were there...
2: not then? Uh, it, it sort of started happening in the eighties, and so that the most recent book I wrote was um, Point Doom was about that dynamic. The I had the idea behind it was native and invasive species, and it, and I was really interested in watching the people that I grew up with. These, you know, very earthy. Not wealthy, but the, the, their priorities were very different from the people that kind of invaded the area and the struggle to survive. The two groups, and the, and then halfway through that book, Point Doom, I found out that the Mexican drug cartels had also moved in. And this is true; had moved into the Malibu Mountains and the growing pot. They're tapping into the water lines of the of the Vanity Vineyards that the rich people have built up on there's, the hillside. There, there
1: I see those when I'm hiking. Isn't it awful? It's, yeah. It makes me. Sort it's of, as bad
2: as the strip mall, as far as I'm concerned. There's something
1: about it because I just feel like. In, this, con- in like t- this day and age, for whatever reason, like having the vineyard, it's like the thing you do. And so
2: you can show up at dinner with your own label and, like, oh, here I brought you a gift.
1: I want to just. My see. wine. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, I love, I you mean, know, I like to drink wine. and yeah, like, me too. I, you know, go to yeah. wine country, go me to Sandy Ness. It's I nice. Know,
2: I know, but, but let's leave the chaparral in Malibu alone. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that that is going on. So I just incorporated that whole element into the book about Point Doom, and it's really about this little area and this struggle to survive of all these different elements.
1: So these Mexican cartels, they're really up in the Malibu
2: They're mountains. really up in the Malibu They're mountains. diverting
1: the water lines to water their well, crops. Well,
2: actually, it's interesting because in Malibu, and it took me months to find this out, the law enforcement was so unhelpful in L.A. County. I had to go out of L.A. County. I actually ended up going into active cartel growth sites with armed um, United States Park Police And breaking down the infrastructure and flying in Black Hawk helicopters, all the stuff, but not in LA County because they wouldn't help me.
1: Wait, you're in a Black Hawk helicopter? Me.
2: Yes. In a uniform. (laughs) It was so cool. (laughs) It was, it was this thing called Operation Locus and it was 13 law enforcement agencies pooled their funds and there was one civilian group, um, and I got, I don't know how I did it, but I warmed my way on the civilian group and we went in with them and we were basically the garbage collectors. We broke down the infrastructure of the camps, pulled all the watering systems out, pulled and categorized all the fertilizers, pesticides, all the stuff they're using. And that is horrific. Um, and then the helicopters would come in and, and take the trash out and then we flew in and out. It was so much
1: fun. So where? And just up in the hills in the woods somewhere? I was in Sequoia.
2: In? They're everywhere. They're everywhere, and I've seen di- four different organizations. You can, they have different growing, different watering systems, different camp systems, different planting systems. I've seen four distinctive types, um, in the course of the research because I kind of got into it and kept going back out. But, um, anyway, back to Malibu. They're up there and they're growing. The biggest one that I know about was, I think it was 10,000 plants, which is a lot. Who are they selling to? Well, that's another question. Because, because I,
1: this is, you know, this is like, especially today and especially mm-hmm. in California, mm-hmm. which doesn't have the most permissive, right? It doesn't have the most permissive laws, but it's close. Yeah. And culturally, like people don't care. I mean, most I don't know no, anybody nobody who cares. cares.
2: Nobody cares. And
1: so it's like, you can just go down to Venice beach and get a medical marijuana yeah, and, yes. license for like a hundred bucks and then you're, you're done. You just totally go to the done. dispensary. And because you, can,
2: you have a little stress. You need, you need the You're pot. an insomnia. <laughs> okay. So I can tell you exactly where it goes. Um, because I got all these friends on law enforcement friends from the research one of the, one of them was used to be the head law enforcement guy in Sequoia National Park so he told me this and he's retired now so I don't think he cares they if your car is in a national park it is legal for law enforcement to put a tracker on your car so and Sequoia National Park there's only one road in and one road out so it's not hard to monitor so they let a car come in and to do a pickup and they put a tracker on the car while they were away from the car. And they tracked it. They did a pickup in Sequoia. And Sequoia is sort of like ground zero for all this activity right after 9-11. It really took off. Anyway, it, it went from Sequoia National Park. It went up to Portland. It went across to Chicago. It went down to South Carolina. It went someplace else. No, someplace before South Carolina. And they ended up arresting them in South Carolina. But so... They are servicing the entire United States. That's
1: right, and they're going to all the states where there's not a permissive mm-hmm. culture, and they're mm-hmm.
2: selling And stuff. there's a huge market. I mean, it's, right. and they're, they'll plant, they'll have, you know, like 50 gardens in a season, and even if 25 of them get busted, they don't care. It's weed. I, I did an interview for somebody, and I said, it's weed, it's not that hard to grow. And all these pot people like... It is very difficult to grow good marijuana, (laughs) Arnoldi. but, okay, yes and no. I mean, I've been out there. The watering systems, like I saw this site, it was maybe 7,000 plants. It was this little creek that they boarded up, and it was just this, like, waiting pool size, you know, like a kid's waiting pool size pool. It was PVC pipe into a coffee can tied in a nylon stocking stuck in this little wading pool-sized thing of water, and then it was a gravity feed. So it was up up the mountain from where this thing, it ran over a mile, and we had to track it. So we were, like, tunneling through Poison Oak to find the what. I love all this kind of stuff. I, I Like, I think of myself as G.I. Joe. So we <laughs> got there. Um, anyway, and so gravity feed down to um, this pot, 7,000 plants, it's not hard to grow. I mean, I was really struck by that. That's the most surprising thing of all, I guess, is if you have the right conditions, you can, pot is very easy to grow. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, it's just, it's it's maddening to me to think about this whole operation
2: Well, here, how here's, much money's in it. Yeah. Why
1: don't we just legalize it? Well,
2: here's, here's the one thing that really frustrated me during that whole legalization thing last November is... um Having been in these sites, they're using these pesticides and rodenticides and and really toxic fertilizers. You can't even buy them here in the States. It's all coming up from Mexico. And the team I worked with, and I worked with them on that Operation Locust, and then I went out again with them because I enjoyed it so much. But (laughs) they took the stuff, a lot of the chemicals that they found, and had them analyzed. And there was one... Pesticide that a quarter teaspoon, a quarter teaspoon of this pesticide would kill a man. A quarter teaspoon of the pesticide would kill a man. And this stuff is being put in spray bottles and sprayed all over the weed and and then that's harvested and it's ending up everywhere, including the pharmacies, by the way. I'm sorry, but it is. And okay, so that's one thing to be concerned about. So you think
1: that pesticide's getting into the dispensaries too?
2: Absolutely. You do? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, that's one problem. But the bigger problem, because you're making a choice to or not to smoke the pot, the bigger problem is these are designated wilderness lands, and they're very important in my opinion. And all these chemicals get in the waterways, they're permanently killing fish. When you go into one of these cartel grow sets, there is nothing living. There are no bugs, there are no snakes, there are no bunnies, there are no deer, everything is dead because everything likes to eat pot. So they're killing everything. everything. Really? Oh, yeah.
1: B- rabbits eat pots. Every-
2: rabbits, bunnies, rats, everything.
1: Fascinating. So they, they kill... Get high? They must be getting high.
2: I don't know if they get high on the leaves, actually. Oh, okay. The they're not eating
1: the buds. They're not, like, actually.
2: Well, but if you eat the leaves, the buds suffer. They're eating the plants. So yeah. they kill everything. And um, so... So, and so what they're doing environmentally on these huge grow sites is terrible and people don't really know about it and law enforcement doesn't have the resources and uh, by the way i'm no i'm not coming down on the side of law enforcement i'm coming down on the side of let's protect our natural wilderness because our designated wilderness because it's so we don't have enough of it as it is and it's up in sequoia at this point now they the rangers go by and and look for um God, what is it? It's not sulfides. It's, um, anyway, it's a chemical in the water and they check and whenever it comes up high, I'll think of it while we're talking, they just go upstream and start looking for pot farms because the fish all die and the fish don't come back. Ugh. Right? It's really bad. And then it all goes, it ends up in the ocean. Terrible.
1: That's a bummer.
2: I know. So, That's a bummer. I know these issues. I keep getting a hold of these issues and they, it really upset me. <laughs>
1: well, yeah, no, I mean, and how did you? How did I mean? Obviously, living in Malibu, you saw that this was happening. Who who told you, or like, how did you stumble into it?
2: Oh, the pot farms. Yeah. So I hike part of my work day as uh, I'm an early morning person, work-wise, you know. And I get up and I what time? Tr- um, five thirty.
1: Yeah.
2: I get up. Well, now five thirty. Later in the wintertime, Later, it's kind of when the sun starts to come up. I wake up. Uh-huh. I don't have curtains. I don't, I don't, I feel claustrophobic. So well, it's, you live in I live in Melbourne. Come on. Okay. Well, even curtains? in Venice though, we, my husband's studio, no curtains, um, just a wall. Anyway, I get up, I go for a hike. I kind of work through in a weird way what I'm going to do that day in terms of my writing day. And then I go to work. And so I was out on a hike one morning. and ran into a ranger I knew, and we were talking about, you know, bobcats and mountain lions and skunks and badgers. And we ran out of stuff to talk about. I really liked the guy. It's like, so Bob, what else? He's like, well, Mexican drug cartels. And he told me, and it was I was probably almost halfway through the book, and I, I was like, it was like this gift. And this has happened to me a few times in my writing career. Like these things just drop from the sky into my lap. Sure. Because it completely spoke to the thing I was I wanted to talk about and right. the struggle to survive, basically.
1: It's like an illustration of the theme.
2: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I dropped everything and because I didn't know much about pot and spent a summer learning everything. I was smoking a lot of pot, going into the pot farms. Are you I'm a
1: high-functioning smoking. stoner?
2: I don't smoke pot, but I did that summer. Well, I don't. am
1: just saying, when you smoke it, do you turn into an idiot or can you? Total idiot. Total total,
2: idiot. total, total idiot lit my hair on fire making a quesadilla. <laughs> I mean, just, just. Don't
1: <laughs> 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 yeah, I, I'm terrible. I would. I wish I could be because I have friends who can like smoke pot and then just like go deal, go to the bank, and I'm like. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Like I turn into a complete moron.
2: Oh, no. And this, I got from a dispensary and I got eight kinds. I, I sat down with a guy that owned a dispensary and we talked, I told him what I was after. And so he gave me eight, I got eight kinds of pot from him. And the first one was called snow cap. It was snow cap through Jupiter Kush or something.
1: I love the names.
2: Jupiter Kush is you're di- dying of cancer in terrible pain. snowcap snow cap, he said, is, you know, go to work pot. So I thought I'll start with snowcap. That's what I need. And I took a big hit of snowcap in the fetal position, four hours on the couch, just like, when is this going to end? This is too much for me. Right. So then I, I realized I could just do tiny little puff. and um, One hit wonder. Yeah, and I kept thinking I'll take notes on the different kinds so that I can, you know, make observations about that. And I get stoned and be like, oh, forget the notes. Just.
1: <laughs> I'm going to go look at the ocean. No,
2: I just was not functional at all. No,
1: it's terrible. And
2: I had thought that maybe pot culture would be part of this book, but pot culture, um, isn't that interesting, actually?
1: No. I you're just mean, kind of stoned. You're just you know? kind of stoned yeah. and you're eating... Yeah, you know, like I always say, you're eating cereal with your bare hands, and
2: yeah, you know, uh, for me box. it was a day of barbecue potato chips and lemon bars, and back and forth. Which is better? <laughs> I'm not sure. Which? <laughs>
1: <laughs> but you know, it is. I think even so, even though pot culture didn't necessarily cement itself in the in the book, um, if you're going to write about Mexican drug cartels that are growing pot, you should have some. I think that that's actually creatively responsible.
2: Oh, absolutely. I think if you're going to write about a subject that you don't know about, it is your responsibility to learn every single thing you can about that subject before you sit down to write about it. Within
1: reason. I mean, I I wouldn't suggest that somebody mainline heroin, I guess, unless they were really... Well,
2: actually, if you're going to write about somebody mainlining heroin, um, unless you've been there on some level, I don't think you should be writing about it. Maybe so. Because Because the guy that has mainlined heroin... Well, first of all, how are you going to ring a true note if you don't really know what you're talking about?
1: I, I mean, research, watching, imagination. Hey.
2: It, yes. But if, if the thing you're writing about is mainlining heroin, if that's the subject and you've never actually done it... yeah. Maybe that shouldn't be the primary subject. Maybe that's a secondary subject. And so, would
1: you do it if you were doing that kind of book? Would
2: I, ha- I I'd get to pick and choose what I'm writing about. But I'm know? just I'm
1: just saying, like you seem like I mean, because like experiential research is at the heart of your creative life. Yeah, that's safe to say. Totally,
2: absolutely, and, and like
1: you have a really adventurous spirit, which I love. I mean, right. Like, uh, so I'm I'm guessing that you would if if you if a character occurred to you. And this, you fell in love with this character, and this character was an integral part of a, of a book that you were doing. You would find a way, but you would do it responsibly.
2: Yeah. If I wanted to go down that road and write about that thing, I would, I would absolutely do it, but I probably wouldn't want to go down that road. I probably, whatever that thing I had to say, you know, I don't want a mainline heroine, and it, I think there's probably another avenue I could take to get to the same message without that. But, I mean, there's other things like, you know, um, like, there's this thing about polygamy. I wrote about families in the second book, and I was really interested in the dynamic of the family. And so I was looking at all different kinds of families. And um, the weirdest family structure and the sickest one, I think, is polygamy, uh, especially out there in Colorado City. I went out there seven times before CNN got there, and it was really freaking dangerous. Like before Big Love? Before Big Love. Right. Uh, before the fences went up. Before the whole thing with... Um, What's his name? Rulon and um, yeah, I know Rulon Martin. Name? Is that his name? No, let's no, think of it. God, he might be a football player. You know what I'm talking about. He just he, yeah. um, I'll think of it in a minute. Anyway, and it was, but I needed to keep going out there and soaking in it because I didn't feel like and it and it ended up being a very small part of the book. But I can't write about it unless I can come from a very authentic place. Not that I've been a polygamist. I haven't. Obviously, I mean I'm I, I am who I am. But I've been out there and talking to people and being around it. And got a real sense of it, so I could write from this place of authenticity. Now, okay, back to heroin. Maybe I could hang out with someone who was mainlining heroin and vicariously go through it with him. Perhaps I could. It hasn't interested in me. I haven't done it, but I think you have to get pretty damn close to something to write about it. But uh, yeah,
1: and I think, but I think that like a willingness to push the boundaries of what makes you comfortable is something yeah. that you're not only willing to do, but you're into. Right. And like I think uh, that. A lot of writers, writers of fiction maybe in particular, because so much of it is, you know, imagined or is... I feel like so many writers are just kind of cloistered and don't get out there enough, myself included. And I think that listening to what you do is inspiring because you, you just are so willing to go out and get your hands dirty.
2: Well, you know, I'll tell you that the first 20 years of my writing life, the first first 20 years of unpublished writing... Um, the stories were, in retrospect, all about me, and they were just god-awful and boring as hell. And I had to finally get over myself. And So the first, Chemical Pink was my first published novel, uh, and it was the first piece of fiction that I ever wrote that I wasn't in directly. Like, I finally looked up and looked around and took myself out of it and, and went, and I learned so much from that experience. It's like my writing suddenly took off and and my characters and everything else, I had to get out of my own way. And I know that a lot of writers can pull on them. I mean, obviously, I inform all the characters. They're coming from my head, but I'm not directly involved. And so I find that going out and doing this research is a great way for me to sort of get out of my own head and jump into another life.
1: Well, and just and have fun.
2: I know. It's, it's so not a, fun. It's so there's not fun. enough fun. So much so of writing fun. is not fun.
1: Right. So much of writing is not fun. I know. And that's the reality of it. It is. I mean I don't want to sound like a pessimistic note, but a lot of it is grueling yeah. and lonely. And you're sitting there, like I always say, staring at a flashing cursor
2: Yeah.
1: and, uh, you know, getting to go out and have these experiences, um, uh, you know, creative work aside, just add something to your life.
2: And, yeah, and when you're not directly focused on it, you're out there doing the research, it's, it, you are working, it is growing, it's just, you're not forcing it to grow, and that's kind of the lovely thing about it, too. You come back, and it's, a lot of the work's been done, and you didn't even try, and, and that's it's surprising
1: so cool. And it, yeah, you know, it's not like, right. it doesn't have to fit any, I mean, maybe you have expectations going in, but I'm sure you come away surprised. Like, oh, I had no idea that, well, that was going to that's, that's even that's, better than something I could have thought Right.
2: I think that's why, I think that's the thing that keeps me coming back every day is that surprise thing. So when something happens and you didn't think of it and you're like, wow, this is the best thing I've ever, ever experienced.
1: Yeah. Right? Well, I mean, what have you been doing recently? I know, I mean, obviously you went up into these uh, Sequoia and you went yeah. up in the Black Hawk helicopter, but you've been doing other stuff on the Mexican border. Well, too,
2: right. right. So from point Doom I, I kind of, to inform one of these characters, the guy that worked in the pot farms, I did a lot of research on cartels and, and the border and stuff. And then I had another book I was going to write, but I was kind of haunted by what I learned in Mexico and the conditions down there. And so I've spent the last year going down to Mexico, spent a lot of time on the border. Um, I would been into the shelters down in Tijuana and Ensenada and, um, Mexicali interviewing migrants, um, because I, I pick up where I left off in Point Doom with a character who is waiting for her loved one, Felix, who gets killed in the pot farm in California, waiting for him to come home, and she has no word. And this is this is a typical situation that's going on with thousands of people all the time in Mexico. Their loved ones disappear, and there's no way to find out what happened.
1: So with these border towns that you were going to, to visit these shelters and yeah. do this research, are yeah. these all California, Mexico border towns?
2: Tijuana. No, it's all Mexico. I mean... I've been on the California side, but I've also been on the Mexico side. I
1: know, but what I was saying is none of these were like Texas or Arizona. Well,
2: I have been in Arizona, and I've been out on the Tohono O'odham Reservation where a lot of people are dying. A lot of people, thousands of people are dying in the crossings because of our border policies. You know, we're funneling them into the deserts. But my book is going to take place in California. So, um Physically, I felt like I wanted to go to the cities where my people might be coming across. Is
1: there is there like a palpable sense of danger? Totally. Those, there is because I've heard that. I mean, that's like you know, you go down to Cancun or you go down to Baja, or I'm sorry, Cabo, and. The, you know, it's you don't really sense thing. it. It's a tourist thing. But like you know, when you go to these border towns, it's more, much more.
2: Well, there's the militarized red blocks where everyone's wearing black face masks because they don't want to be identified, and so you're getting stopped. by... this is in Tijuana. I mean, you, we could drive down there right now if you want to, and I'll show you. Well, actually, I don't even want to do that. I'm not going to go again. Um, the the scary part about that is accountability. So there's there's an everyone is anonymous, and they've got they don't want they don't want to get targeted, but. The bad guys and the good guys are, everybody's wearing these camo uniforms, so you don't know who you're dealing with. You don't know. And one thing that happened is I've started my day with the Mexican blogs, and I don't know if you've seen them, but, um. No,
1: but, uh, no, tell me, which ones are they? The,
2: there's Borderland Beat, and there's, um, El Blog del Narco. There's a lot of them. And that's where the news of what's really happening in Mexico, you know, I mean, we don't read much about it in the U.S. press because there's so many other things going on in the world, but.
1: Like, Kate, like, you know, all these different like sensational tabloid stories. and
2: Well, see, what's happened in Mexico, there's all these different cartels, and it's become like this competition of who can be more fierce. And so the beheadings that you hear about from time to time, that's like old hat for me because I start the day with the blogs. Ten people decapitated. Yeah, it's kind of about 15. Okay, 15. And then they hang them from bridges. And then the newest thing is they've started flaying people alive. And um, and what they'll do is lovingly video all this torture and all this stuff and then post it and then like the zetas do this and then the sinaloa cartel will one up them by doing something more horrible and then and it's like this competition thing and what's happened to me is I've sort of lost perspective about you know it's happening but it's not happening everywhere and you can go down and spend a day in Tijuana maybe not see any of the stuff that I saw or you can go down and get caught in the middle of something really horrific so it's hard to know but the the border the border cities, in general, are are much more dangerous than Cancun. That's, Although in Cancun there's been a lot of stuff going on. I mean, you
0: know,
1: it, not, there's no part of the country that's totally, yeah, you know, it's kind of out of control from, down there. But filleting people,
2: filleting people. Flame. Okay, and another thing they do is they decapitate the heads and then they carefully take off the skin, and I've seen a few pictures of this. They'll tack the skin so it's like a Halloween mask hanging above the skin's skull, and they'll photograph lots of pictures, and then post, 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 post all over the place, and this is what happens to our enemies. You know, it's crazy.
1: These people are psychotic.
2: They're psychotic, and so is Katie, because Katie is getting up every day and looking at this and reading this, and it, I became desensitized so quickly. And so anyway, so I've been writing this book, right, where all this happens. And I actually finished this book. And there's always been th- issues in my books that I deal with. But the characters were in the forefront and the issues were the backdrop. And um, I finished this book and realized that it sucks. And the reason it sucks is because the issues are the forefront and the characters never actually ever came to life. So I have to start over. And that's the danger, I think, when you look at real-life issues like, you know, Drug cartels, killing, border issues, death—it um, can take over, and you can lose balance. And and that's not the kind of writer I am. I'm not a journalist, you know. I'm, an, I'm I, the characters. Why the, not? Yeah. Well, because. That element of surprise when we sit down and something happens like we were just talking about, that's the thing that brings me to work every day. And the stuff that I learn on my research trips, I already know that. And I'm not interested in reporting that. I'm interested in what I can do with that information and what can come out of it creatively. That's what I'm interested in. So um, That That
1: transformation. Yeah,
2: and that's why I don't write nonfiction. I already know that. It's what I can do with that information that interests me,
1: right? And then having to couch it in a, in a human story, in a real human, you know, yeah, making it character-driven.
2: Well, and the characters and the people that live in those conditions—those—that's what interests me. The people. So.
1: so you go down to you go down to these border towns. You go down to Tijuana. You go to these shelters. What kind of stories are you?
2: hearing? Oh my God! I I, I heard a story. I heard every story I heard was amazingly heartbreaking. And what struck me as the strength of character in Every single one of these individuals, and I'm not going to go into the whole political thing, but because of NAFTA and a whole bunch of other things, it's almost impossible for a young man to make a living in in rural Mexico. There is no work at all, period, no money, except for the cartels. So they got to come across, and and we are offering work. Who's going to pick our food? I mean, go out to the fields. They're all illegal. Of course, we're not swooping down during the harvest, but I'm not going to get started on that. So I, why I was specifically interested is my character, Violetta, is going to come across looking for Felix. Felix was in point dim. She hasn't heard from him. She's going to come across. So what happens to a woman coming across? Well, 90, let's back it down, 80% of women that come across now are going to be raped, and they all know it. It is part of the price of admission. They know it. So By whom? by either the coyote that's bringing them across, the bandits that are going to attack them, the guy that organized the coyote, or all three.
1: So, yeah, because, I mean, I've read stuff about this. These coyotes are essentially facilitators. They're guides.
2: Yeah, they're guides. Actually, they don't use that expression anymore. They're calling them guias. But, okay, so there's the guia that gets you from... The staging area to the Mexican California border, and then there's another guía that's going to meet you Californian and bring you to whatever your pickup spot is, and so those two guys probably are going to rape you, and then you're probably going to go to a safe house, and that guy may rape you too, and then if you're lucky, you'll get picked up.
1: So they're all they're all it's women deviants.
2: women women in Mexico, and I know that this is going to upset a lot of people, but it's really true. Poor women in Mexico have almost no power, and so I, I interviewed a woman, I talked to a woman who had come across years ago, she lived in Santa Maria with her husband, they had three kids, one was, two were born in Mexico, one was born up here, um, the oldest was in college, they had a life, I mean, the, they'd been here for 20 years, um, she got picked up at a traffic stop, a, a, a taillight was out or something, and i instantly deported, back down to Mexico, and because she got deported illegally she is not eligible to apply for a legal visa now for 20 years her family is up in santa rosa or santa maria um her youngest is five years old she is going to get back to her family so we're talking to her okay so we're talking to this woman and there is a strength and and just and just an incredible integrity to this woman she's just telling the story she is not a victim she is going to get back to her family and then I was with a friend um, who's making documentary film about this. And then he asked her, well, just tell us about your background. And this woman had just such presence. And she said, well, I, I was um, I was born in Mexico City. I was one of 12 girls. Um, my uh, No, I was one of 12 children, eight girls. Um, my mother had all the girls in prostitution. I started working when I was four years old. Jeez. At 13, I got pregnant. My mother said I had to abort the child because I couldn't work when I was pregnant. I said to my mother, I will not abort this child. She threw me out on the street. I was 13. One of her clients was this young man who loved her, and he said, come with me. I'll raise this child as my own, and that is the man that she married, and that baby that she was pregnant with at 13 is the one who's in college in Santa Maria. Okay, she just told me the story. She wasn't she wasn't leading with the story. She wasn't relying on the story. This is her life. This is this woman. I mean, I heard stories like that and you hear a story like that and it changes you forever because she is not a victim. The strength of her spirit and the courage that I saw in that woman in her eyes and i'm i hope she's back with her family but she was crossing within days of our interview and she knew what she was up against cuz she'd already been through it once and it wasn't it didn't matter it was just she was going to get back to her family and the people she loved it was incredible
1: god i mean, right there's got to be a there's got to be a better way oh
2: so there's so many things we need to do we need to oh there 's yeah there are many things we need to do legalize pot that 'll take care of that situation. The cartels have taken over the human trafficking thing completely now, so it 's a very organized business. We need to deal with our immigration policies. We need to get a worker program canada 's got one that 's very successful. We in the past have had one. We need to totally restructure so many things and and it 's very disappointing that obama really hasn 't been as proactive about this as, as I had it's, hoped. It's a winning
1: issue for the Democrats, isn't it? I mean, like, I feel like they got the
2: Latino vote last time, and it was like... Well, I know, but then you get in, you know, it's it's these... Uh, it's a very complicated issue. It's a very complicated issue. Did you hear last summer when um, when they did that campaign, Take My Job, um, what's his name, you know... <sighs> Oh, um, John Stewart—not John Stewart, but the other one, Stephen Colbert. Yeah, and he did this big campaign, "Take My Job," where he went out to Bakersfield and he offered—he um, offered everyone in the country, "Come on, we're going to pick strawberries for whatever it is, minimum wage, and no more illegal migrants picking our food. Let's all join hands and take these jobs." Because the, the four people in the United States, four people showed up for the job. That's it. Okay. They're not taking our jobs, nobody wants these jobs, right, and we need our food picked and so it's such a hypocrisy because there are jobs if you can get across we 're going to make it really difficult for you we're going to try and kill you, but if you get across, there's plenty of work up here because we need you, so
1: makes no sense no it doesn't makes it doesn't. No sense uh-uh. so you wrote this book, you felt like the issue was uh, the issues at the heart of it
2: were taking too much of center stage. The writing was flat. I got, you know, my bleeding heart made a mess of the page. That's how I see it. And I need to go back now and make these people real like Violetta. I have so much respect for Violetta. Violetta is not human. She's like a little goddess. She's not human. I need to. She's real, though. You know, she has all the problems that we do and the flaws. And I've got to go back and make her real and everybody around her real. So,
1: yeah. So you're going to go back and you're going (sighs) to do a rewrite. You started a rewrite.
2: Yeah, I started. I started. You did.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. How long ago?
2: Uh, in the last couple of weeks, this is all in the last month. This crisis,
1: <laughs> they happen.
2: <laughs> they do. <laughs> uh,
1: so now, uh, what about like your work schedule? You said you're pretty disciplined. You're up early.
2: I get six up day, early. Six days a
1: week. You work seven no, days, five days. No,
2: you know, when it's going well at the end, seven days. And that's a pleasure. Like when you can, you know, the home stretch, Yeah. then all I want to do is You work. know where
1: everything goes. And
2: oh, and you just can't wait to get back to the, but that's the, that's the payoff. Um, yeah. Monday through Friday. Sometimes Saturday.
1: Yeah, up yeah. early and then you work. Up early work at and home?
2: no, I go to this place called the office, and it's in uh, Brentwood, where it's a bunch of a bunch of writers. My son calls it adult daycare. You pay <laughs> rent, and like we, our desks are close to each other. You're not allowed to talk. Can't talk on the phone. And my big thing can't take naps. So because I nap, I'm a big nap. You can nap. I can be like. I have a problem with this character. I'm just going to lie down on the floor and work it out. And then two hours later, I wake up and the day's gone. Right. You can't nap. So you got to just sit there quietly at your desk. And it's been the most productive place I've ever worked. It's been great.
1: God, that's, I mean, that's like such enforced discipline.
2: I I need it. Yeah. But you
1: box yourself in. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, you give yourself no no choice but to sit there and work.
2: Yeah, I've written two novels there. Do they give you
1: Wi-Fi there or no?
2: Yeah, they do. And you could turn it off. I don't. I mean, I have turned it off. And then it's like, email me
1: please, email me please. (laughs) What's happening on Facebook? (laughs) All that stuff. I mean, the internet internet really is like the supreme distraction. It's sort of cruel that it's like... On the same machine that most writers use to write, you know.
2: Yeah, but what's, what is cool though is like, oh, wait, I don't really know about whatever that subject is. In two seconds, you can get all the information you ever needed about whatever tobacco and it's there and on you go. Whereas before you would have had to stop and in the old days, go to the library, God forbid, you know.
1: Yeah. So card catalog. Card, yeah. all right? But or, or go out and God forbid do research. So it's yeah. good that you don't rely too heavily on the internet. Right. It sounds right. like you're like, okay, well, I got what I need now. I want to go. Flying a Black Hawk helicopter. Yeah, 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 yeah. Did you rappel on a rope off this thing or did it land?
2: No, it was land. See, now I missed that. They were, and there's a name for that. And they all had harnesses and stuff. And they, I missed that. It landed. So um, we didn't, we, they landed, we got out, we did our thing. And then we took off. And you
1: never felt unsafe.
2: No, I felt exhilarated as hell. Oh my god. But there was, was so I mean, was there any It was dangerous, it yes, was dangerous. it was dangerous. They arrested there was gunfire exchange. They arrested in that operation, I think they arrested thirty six guys. Here's the deal. They in in the pop forms, they'll go down to a town, this happens in Point They go down to a town and they'll say to this poor young man like Felix, um, here's the deal, we'll bring you across for free. We will pay you $10,000. All you have to do is stay in the site for four months and grow these plants. So he gets there. He's on the site. He's never been out of Mexico. He doesn't speak English. He doesn't know where he is. Then they say to him, "Uh, by the way, we know where your sisters and your mother live. If anything happens to these plants, if anybody disturbs this site, if you don't get the yield we're looking for, we're going to rape and kill your mother and your sisters, and then we'll come after you. So you've got these young Mexican men out there armed and scared out of their minds and the incentive to, to protect their site is their families back home. And cause we all know that the cartels do, you know, and enjoy massacring people. Um, so it is dangerous when you go out there. And so, yeah, they arrested 36 people and there. It was, it was, it was like the real deal.
1: And so when these guys get arrested, does that basically mean that their family is screwed back home? (laughs)
2: I don't know. You know, I don't, I don't know that the fo- that's what they've been told. But when they get arrested, the thing, and what law enforcement knows, that Felix Duarte knows absolutely nothing about anything except that the lunchman, that's what they call the food drop guy, the lunchman makes a drop every two weeks up at this place off the road where he can get his food and his supplies. What is he?
1: Is he living in a tent?
2: He's living in a tent, in the wilderness growing pot and he never leaves and he can't have light at night because he can't, you know, he's living under a canopy of of whatever chaparral or trees or wherever, depending where he is. And I've been into countless sites, and it's the same scene everywhere. Are they it's gross a tent. Are they, are they- well, that was interesting because different sites, very different personalities. Like one of them, the guy had made beautiful stick furniture, and there were tables and shelves, and he'd really put some effort into and the latrine was way over there, trash heap was over there. Another site, the latrine, trash heap, and kitchen were all in the same area. It stunk. It was filthy. Each one was completely different, and that was really cool to see. That you know sounds like this guy
1: with the the furniture had like some interior design. Oh
2: yeah, totally. And he ended up in the book. He's the guy I chose. (laughs) You know? Yeah.
1: I like what you've done with the. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, look
2: how you wove this together. (laughs) Uh,
1: Well, that's you know that's all like super crazy that it's happening not far from here.
2: It's happening in any public ground, public lands because it can't be traced back to anything. You know, like so nobody owns it, so there's no, it's free. And um, also, you know, it's not as accessible, but it's happening all over the country.
1: Oh, and then, like, when you do this research on the border, uh, or the, or this research, I guess, up in the Malibu Mountains, do you speak Spanish, or do you have a translator?
2: Yeah, I, my Spanish is like that of a three-year-old, maybe, but what was interesting is when I was down in, in these shelters, because I did study Spanish in high school, and there was this very heightened, you know, emotional thing that was going on, and that, like, the story I told you and others, my Spanish got so good, and I really could understand, so, and I had that one other time, one time I was driving in the hills from Oaxaca over to Puerto surf and um our car broke down Oh no we got pulled over by federales and it was the height of the pot season this is in the 80s and at gunpoint and of course i was wearing short shorts and like a crop top so stupid and all these guys and my husband who doesn't speak spanish and suddenly my spanish like was perfect there's it's in there and it came out and i talked our way out of it which i'm still i have goosebumps even telling you that story so, in the situation of interviewing these women when they, their stories were so important and so real, and it was like this moment, I understood. It comes and goes, is what, it I'm, comes what I'm saying. I can it's speak, in there. I can, I
1: can speak when I'm drunk, strangely.
2: Right? People. Well, so that's the same thing. So yeah, you just. You loosen you up you a little
1: bit and you're You bringing...
2: access it, it's wow. in there. Yeah, it's cool.
1: That's nuts. So you were yeah. down there, and they they, have, they actually just pulled their guns on you?
2: They had guns out. This well, what kind of
1: life have you led? You have led it a crazy I know, life.
2: I know. That's why I want the action figure. I'm so into having an action <laughs> figure. It's total fantasy. Here's the thing, though. You know, I think I'm so good at all this stuff, and I keep getting in these bad situations because I'm not as good as I think I am. But no,
1: but you're like a movie character. I could see it's, it's kind of it's like Joan Wilder in Romancing the Stone. Starring
2: actually. in my own little film. That's right. <laughs>
1: So now, where do you get this from? I mean, like, how did you... Do you have, uh, I mean, artists in your family? Is it, like, part of the family gene pool, or are you sort of... You know,
2: model? my mother's an anthropologist, and she's ever, for my entire life, been taking off and going into the back country in Mexico... Her her specialty is Aztecs and Mesoamerican textiles, but she spent a lot of time doing field work. So probably that's where I get well, there it. You go. Yeah, she was my little role model. Did she
1: take you on these things on these expeditions? No,
2: and I think I romanticized the trips that she was on. You know, like she seemed badass, and so I'm way more badass than she was. You got but, a top mom. Yeah, and my daughter, who is tagging great white sharks, she is the baddest ass I have ever met in my life. That's- she is so amazing. She's my hero.
1: So that's basically. The Arnaldi line is yeah. just badasses.
2: Badass women.
1: That's it. <laughs> so you know your daughter. Uh, what is the technical name for what she's studying to be like? She's studying marine, marine biology. biology yeah, okay. but
2: she's specializing in. Um, yeah, and she's you know she's working up in Monterey in the lab this summer and. She, it's great. You sit down and talk to her and she can tell you anything about the ocean, not just sharks. She's, but she grew up on the beach and she's always been obsessed with the water. She's a
1: surfer too? Yeah.
2: She's, she surfed the whole NSSA circuit. She was really good. What's
1: the NSSA circuit?
2: National Scholastic Surfing Association. It's how you, when you're a kid, it's how you come up. That's what you do before you turn pro. So.
1: So she was good enough to turn pro? No, but she was
2: good enough to surf in NSSA. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So good. traveling
1: too. How much do you travel? It sounds like you go a lot of different places. A
2: lot. A lot. Like how often? Kind of restless.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, One year I did 18 trips. Jesus. I know. That was a bad year. But I mean, I call a trip like going out to Colorado City for two days just because I need to go look at it again. So that was that there? year. I drive. To, I like to. I love to drive. Oh, you do. Okay. I love to drive. And I love books on tape. What's In the car. One? What's a good one? You know what's a good one? Under the Dome is the best book on tape. Okay, I don't think I would have read it Stephen King. I don't think I would have read it, although I think Lisi's story was a very good novel, but he I'm not a Stephen King person. But Under the Dome on tape is read so brilliantly by, and I can't tell you who read it. I, I don't remember names. It's, it's one of the best books on tape I've heard in years. Well,
1: that's the thing, though, because I'm like, you know, I'm podcasting. Right, books right. On, books on tape are solely dependent for me on who the reader yeah. is. I agree. And you can take, you know, what might not be the greatest book in the world, but if it's read beautifully, yes. it will leave you like floored. And, uh, you know, conversely, if you're, it could be the greatest novel ever written. Yeah. But if it's read, Poorly flat, read. Yeah, yeah, it's like, ugh, I ruin can't. It. It, it. I, I
2: agree. And there have been several novels that I've just turned off, but, but that's a great one. It's 35 hours long a
1: lot well that's good if you're on a long trip yes yeah so you'll just jump in the car or i mean 18 trips and then
2: i will jump in the car at the drop of a hat if something interests me i will get in the car if you say hey kate i'm going to wherever and and i'll say that sounds cool i'll go with you i mean i'm really interested in getting an experience that's it that's it
1: so give me like what's a recent trip a couple of recent trips
2: okay well i just went to the venice biennale and uh um that i had never been before the venice biennale Everyone in the world should go to the Venice Biennale. It's countries in Italy.
1: Big art. uh,
2: It's yeah. It's 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 every two years, and it's countries from all over the world, and each country has a pavilion, and there's of course a lot of bad art. A lot of great art, but the energy in the city because it's just honoring art from all over the world, and so it's all day, every day, like four days of looking at art. It was one of the most inspirational things I've ever done in my life.
1: So, what country was the most <clears throat> impressive?
2: Argentina. Really? Funny. I walked into the pavilion and it was these like these concrete sculptures. It was almost they were almost tree like, like uh, giant sequoia trees or something, but. These sculptural, it was like this landscape, you are within this landscape, weird sculptural masses. It was really, really cool. Really cool. And also, Paul McCarthy had um, a room at the Pinot Museum. Not which Paul was...
1: McCartney, Paul McCarthy.
2: Paul McCarthy. Did I say Cartney? No, no,
1: no. Yeah, I just McCarthy. To yeah. Paul
2: McCarthy. Great artist. Great artist. Um, that I will never forget.
1: He had a room where?
2: And, uh, this guy named Pino, he has a museum in Venice, and it's, it was a private collection. I think it's always up. Really cool. Anyway.
1: What, what about Venice? I mean, I've heard mixed Venice things. Venice is
2: great. You liked it. Oh. It's so neat. Yeah, and you take a boat everywhere.
1: It didn't smell or anything. I, I, no, I, no, I, I heard no, no, no. Like and you in know the what? Whoever heat. you
2: people get over the smell. It's so cool. It's yeah. so cool. And you know, and then the the bus. It's a, it's a boat. You get on the bus. You go across there, and then you go up there on the bus on the boat. It's so much fun. I wow. loved it. I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. It was great.
1: So and you just went. Well, your husband's a painter, so yeah, you, yeah, you know.
2: yeah. He was in a show there, so. um, as part of the Biennale, so that was a, a, re, a good reason to be there. It
1: oh, was really cool. You're making me jealous. Now, give me, uh, give me another one. Just okay, make me- I'm
2: going backpacking by myself up to 11,000 feet on the Sequoia Kings Canyon border, and I'll go up, and I'll stay out probably four days alone.
1: Where is this? Sequoia, Sequoia, Sequoia King- National Park. I know, but I mean like Sequoia Kings Okay,
2: Canyon. so I park in Sequoia, and I walk in uh, about 15 miles up to about 11,000 feet off trail. Well, trail and then off trail.
1: And then you just have your tent and you just Along stay there. And
2: hike and just be. That's cool. This is my favorite trip.
1: You do that often?
2: I do that every summer. You do? Yeah.
1: How many summers in a row?
2: I've done it probably, I've been going up there for 10 years, eight years. And so for four Alone. Days. I did three outward bound survival courses about 10 years ago. 10 day courses where you go out and you map and compass and you have to find water and you don't have a tent. And I got rained out and snowed out and like the real deal. So I got all these skills. So then I go out and practice them.
1: So basically, if if the shit hits the fan, I'm like.
2: I know. I got my stove. Come over. I well, can. No,
1: that's what I'm saying. I live in Los Angeles. You live in Melbourne. <laughs> yeah. If, come if, over. If a nuclear bomb right. drops on Los Angeles, right. or the shit, I'm coming to. Your I've thought
2: it out too, because okay, so we have got the fish, and then I know where there's a year-round spring in the mountains, so I'm we're all set.
1: You already, you already have that.
2: I got it worked out. I have thought it out.
1: So it, 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 theoretically, if we were to take you, blindfold you, put you in a Black Hawk helicopter, yeah. And drop you in the middle of the woods like that one show. I forget yeah, the name of the yeah, show.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. You would yeah.
1: probably be okay so,
2: you, okay, so what I would like to tell you is that in my fantasy world, yes, I'd be just fine. In real life, no. I would probably start crying from the moment you drop me <laughs> off. There's a little there's a little bit of a discrepancy between reality and fantasy, but I do like trying to push that thing a little bit, but uh, uh, you know, I'm just, good, but I'm not that good. Just
1: being out at eleven thousand feet for four nights I know. by yourself—most people wouldn't do that. No,
2: I know, I know, and it—it yeah. it is scary. Actually, it gets uh-huh. dark. It's a long night.
1: No, yeah, I've yeah. done some. I, mean, I did the Appalachian Trail when I was out of college. Like I my, did you? It's my big nature experience. I did not grow up doing this. Did time.
2: you read that Bill Bill Bry, Bryson? Bryson a
1: long time ago. Yeah. Funny, wasn't yeah, it? I yeah, yeah, that yeah. No, I mean, it was like you know, and the lights go out at night. Yeah, I had my dog with me, so that was like some comfort. But I mean.
2: It's a long night.
1: Yeah. You're
2: in your bag. It's three in the morning. What was that sound? Yes. You're alone. Oh my god. But I don't know. Then I come back out of that, and I come home, and everything seems so easy, and I'm so inspired, and I love going back to work after a trip like that. Really do. And also, you know, I work some stuff out.
1: It clears your head. It does. I mean, you can being in being uh, like actively engaged in with nature. Yeah. I mean, not to sound too hippie, but like that. No, I, it's. It really does something. Totally true. And you live in Los Angeles and, you know, you have a little bit more access because you're on the coast. Yeah. I mean, I'm landlocked for LA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, every time I get out, it's like, oh.
2: No, I know. And I can feel it physically too. So the other place I go a lot is Southeast Utah and, and the canyons out there and stuff. And that same thing is that just that, uh, relaxing and sort of opening. And um, I do that a lot. So those aren't big expensive trips that's just going out and being alone in nature
1: and being willing to do that
2: loving to do that yeah yeah
1: and you camp and like you're happy to sleep in a tent
2: yeah i have a taser but yeah
1: do you really yeah you bring a taser i
2: have a taser because if i'm doing car camping i just feel like i should i wouldn't shoot someone but i'd tase them i've tasered myself too i i Poor. I first time I got it, I went and I shot the tree just so I knew how it work, and I was too close, and the prong bounced back and hit me. And you just don't ever want to be tasered because it's the worst feeling, and there's a <laughs> it's horrible. But so I know. It just dropped. No, it hit me and popped off. So it was just that second, but it was terrible.
1: So you, can you tase an, a wild animal?
2: I'm not afraid of the wild animals. So. I know,
1: but I mean, if like a bear, I, don't know. I wonder if you could if you could tase like a.
2: I don't take it backpacking. Oh, you don't? No, I take it car camping when I go out and do that kind of stuff.
1: Okay. Yeah. So what, you, like Southeast Utah, you're car camping or are you hiking mm-hmm. into the canyons?
2: Mm-hmm. Hiking in day hikes. Yeah. I did one little backpacking thing out there, but those canyons are like mazes and I kind of get nervous about getting lost. Oh well, yeah. That's I a- went out with a guide one time into a Death Canyon, which was cool. <laughs> Great name. Yeah. You're yeah, right. <laughs> and we saw no people and lots of Indian stuff, but.
1: And you have your taser.
2: And I have my taser.
1: That's kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, because it's it's fairly bulky.
2: It's big. It's, yeah. they have little ones now, though. They
1: do. Yeah, cute little ones. Cute ones, first <laughs> size.
2: So <laughs> I don't have one. Though. I have one of the old style ones. So
1: all right, old school. Yeah. Well, this is uh this has been fascinating.
2: <laughs> it's been fun I'm, for me. I'm
1: jealous. I mean, there's all this stuff that you're doing. It's it's inspiring. It makes me want to go out and sort of uh, get in trouble, you know, and do some weird stuff and. I don't know. I think writers need to do I think people need to do more of this stuff, test themselves and put themselves into uh, environments that uh, are unfamiliar. There's something to that. I agree. Makes life more interesting.
2: I totally agree. Uh,
1: Well, thank you so much.
2: Thank you, Brad.
1: Okay, there it is, folks. That's the show. That's Katie Arnoldi. Just admit it. Now you want to be her friend, don't you? You want to hang out with her. You want to be her sidekick. You want to go do field research. You want to go... Like, hack through a jungle with a machete with her. You want to surf with her, possibly even on the same board. You want to be her sidekick. It's what you want after talking to her. If you want to find her on the web, she's at katiearnaldi.com. She's on Twitter. Her handle is at katiearnaldi. Her last name is Arnold with an I. Uh, I think she has a Facebook page, too. This show, you can find it on the web at otherpeoplepod.com. The Twitter handle, at Other People Pod. You can follow me on Twitter, at Brad Listy. The, the show has a Facebook page. And if you want to email me, the address is letters at com. Uh, real quick, if you like the show, if you love the show, if you're mildly amused by the show and you want to help it out, uh, go sign up for the TNB Book Club. That's the official book club of the Nervous Breakdown All you got to do is go to thenervousbreakdown.com, click on Book Club in the menu bar, and sign up. It's $9.99 a month. And in exchange for $9.99 a month, you get a brand new book delivered to your door every 30 days. It's a good deal, less than the cost of a movie ticket. It's less than the cost of a book. And you get a book delivered to your door every 30 days. And uh, what's more, I will be interviewing all of the Book Club authors on this program. So you get the book, you read the book. I interview the author. You get to hear that too. So, uh, you know, if you have the dough and you can swing it, I would certainly appreciate it. What else? Uh, I guess recurring themes. That's where I started. This recurring theme of wanting to do something, of wanting to find some sort of mission, go on grand adventures, you know, be gutsy, put myself out there, take chances, travel the globe by boat. I don't know. You know, you want to do stuff. Katie does stuff. I feel like that's something that uh, I, I need to take a lesson from. And uh, you know, so hopefully, at some point in my life, there will be some sort of lead. I do have this fantasy about some sort of story. You know, some sort of I get some tip. Somebody sends me an anonymous email, tells me that there's something happening. You know, in the in the jungle, in, in the jungles of Central America, or or the you know something in the desert. And I must go seek it out and discover the truth. So, you know, imagine me. I I will have a taser. And, uh, you know, I'll buy a Ford. I'll go buy an old Ford probe just to add a little flavor. And uh, I think the, the last image that I would like to leave you with today is me in a Ford probe, a red Ford probe, driving through the desert, a trail of dust in my wake, A taser on my hip and dueling banjos playing from my stereo.